So our passage today is the balance of chapter 19 of Acts. Um, it's an unusual passage in many ways. Uh, and I think you'll have to just swing chairs around. Okay. We probably need a fifth table in here, actually. Um, if we pack them in, that's right. <laughs> that's funny. So why why are the other weeks when there's only six people here and we have the same reaction? Oh <laughs> uh, yes, our daughter Fiona and son-in-law Andy and they have just walked in. They too can try to find seats. <clears throat> So when we were last together uh, and I was teaching was on Palm Sunday and we were discussing the first half of chapter 19 where you had the ministry of Paul affected the, I can call them the magicians or the, uh, those that were trying to uh, replicate the supernatural uh, activity of, of Paul and his ministry and then we ended up with the uh, the proponents who were converted burning all of their material in the town square <clears throat> and I have it's still that still boggles my mind um, for those of you who weren't here when it said that the value of what they burned was 50,000 pieces of silver in verse 19. And you realize Judas sold Jesus to the Romans for 30. So it's a pretty extraordinary event when that occurred. But what you have in verse 21 and 22 is like this parenthetical pause because we just had this great story of the, um, um, these magicians you know, giving up their stuff and all very uh, um, public. In verse 17 it said, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus and Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord was extolled. In verse 20 it says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then Luke, goes into this travel log. And you're going, okay, why don't you just write a book like we would? You know, this is what we would normally just continue the story. Instead, Luke, in writing Acts, has this parenthetical pause of Paul's travel plans. So as an editor, you wouldn't have done that? I would not have let that happen. <laughs> I would say, let's stick that at the end of the story where it makes sense because the beginning of chapter 20 picks up with after all of the hullabaloo and then the travels begin. So anyway, um, you just kind of have to get used to the fact that the Bible is not written the way we normally write. Uh, let's see, write our documentaries. Um, Maybe this was intended for as a commercial break. You know, this was a commercial for Expedia. Uh, they just left the branding off. I'm sorry, that was terrible. 
That was not in my notes. That was, that's usually a danger. Uh, anyway, verse 21 reads, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now I need to stop right there because I just love it when Pastor Jim's sermon dovetails with our lessons. I have this entire excursus on why we call it Asia. And he (laughs) took that all away from me during the sermon today. So it was like, okay, I don't have to teach on that part. Um, So if you were to look on your your last page where I have the map of all of it, you can see the various locations that are mentioned in this passage. Remember, Macedonia is northern Greece. Achaia is southern Greece, at least according to today's terminology. Achaia is better known because that's where Athens and Corinth are. Macedonia was more of a thoroughfare uh, with Philippi, Thessalonica, and others, um, almost a gateway to Asia Minor, which is one way we designate this this particular piece of uh, geography. But there's a couple things you want to look at. In remembering our chronology, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, keep the map open, Paul spent time in Troas waiting for Titus. So this was after he had left Ephesus. So this letter, as we're reading it, or as this, this story, he ha- has, hasn't written or is in the midst of writing 2 Corinthians. He went to Troas, awaiting Titus. He said so in 2 Corinthians 2.12. Then he went to Macedonia, probably Philippi. And then over in Romans chapter 15, it mentions that he then went to Ilicrium, which is, see the upper left-hand corner of your map? So what country would that be, for those of you who know your geography? Albania. Albania. Okay, so you have these journeys, but not specifically designated here in Acts. We have to pick up little hints in other spots to figure out where Paul was traveling. Titus met Paul probably in Philippi, and then Paul finished the book of 2 Corinthians. So here we are. We're still in Ephesus. He hasn't left town yet, but Paul has already made plans. He plans to go to Macedonia and Achaia. And then he says, and then to go to Jerusalem. Now, he needs to go west to go east? Why? That's just odd. If he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's already halfway there. Why go the other direction and then go back? Well, he had various reasons. In fact, you find um, at the end of, I think it's in chapter 20, he wanted to get Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, for the day, for the celebration of Pentecost. 
That was his goal, and his goal was to collect money in all of these various areas and take it to the church in Jerusalem, which was in dire need. But then this is little hint right here at the end of verse 21. And I must also see Rome. So he goes west to go east to go west, and then north. This is not a simple trip. You don't just hop in your car, if you're in Turkey, and drive to Rome, Italy. Even if you did, it would take you days today. He knows this is going to be a long journey. He also has this idea that obviously the people in Rome are important to him. Uh, he probably knows about Rome because of his friendship with Priscilla and Aquila, who are co-ministers with them. They were from Rome. They had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor who cleared the city of all the Jews back in 42 BC. And he's heard about them. He knows that there's a church there. So he makes his, his goal is to go to Rome. But then we find in Romans chapter 15. There was probably a Christian group in Rome. If they met in the synagogue, it's possible. But again, we're finding pretty frequently that if Christians started in the synagogue, they ended up taking up residence somewhere else. Yeah, or we call it a church. They would not use that word. They would have called it a fellowship. Um, but that's a good. It's a good point. In Romans chapter 15, now remember, Paul wrote the book of Romans before he went there. So he wrote the entire book of Romans to a people he had not personally visited. But in Romans 15, verse 23, he says, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, he's talking about um, <clears throat> Achaia and Macedonia, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. <laughs> and to be helped on my journey there by you once you've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. So now we know, ultimately, Paul's plans was to go to Spain. No one knows if he actually got there. There's no indication in the New Testament that he actually got to Spain. We can make assumptions that he got there. There's nothing that says that he didn't. And the book of Acts does not end with Paul's death. It ends with him being released from prison in Rome. So many think that he then went over to Spain, then came back and met good old Emperor Nero. And that was the end, but that was later. So anyway, 
That's a little bit of a side. We'll all come back to these details because I know you're locking them firmly into your brain right now. And if I were to quiz you next week, you would remember everything. So we're not going to wait till heaven to find out. We were not wait till heaven, no, because we will know it here. Not kidding. <laughs> I have to constantly rehearse this because it's that idea of where was Paul and when, and what was he doing when he was there. So right now, we have Paul in Ephesus. That's why this historical parentheses is kind of odd, because it kind of takes you out and then brings you back in the story. But one little trivia thing also is there's lots of names in this particular passage. We have verse 22, Timothy and Erastus. And you go, well, we know who Timothy is. In fact, there's two letters written to him by Paul. Who in the world is Erastus? Well, in, see, it's in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, it's mentioned. Remember, he's in Corinth now writing to Rome. And it says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And you think, but right now I'm in Ephesus, and he says, Timothy and Erastus, I'm sending your direction, I'm sending into Macedonia, which means Corinth. Did Erastus go there and then run for office? Or is it a common name? Is it possible there's more than one Erastus? Of course there is. I mean, I would like to think I'm the only Steve in the entire world, but I know that's not the case. Uh, there's this thing that happens that, with names. But also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, it says Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. We also find in archaeology a plaque has been discovered in a pavement stone in Corinth that says Erastus commissioned commissioner of public works sustained the cost for this pavement so you have in Rome in Romans he's called a city treasurer in archaeology he's called a commissioner of public works so some guy in Corinth by the name of Erastus was very important in the NIV, it says uh, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works. They're taking it from the archaeological thing to clarify it. Because. It was my grandpa's middle name. That's right. That's why like, anybody say Erastus, like, he was the city treasurer and do all this stuff because it was his middle name, Enoch Erastus. Enoch Erastus. Now, I'm talking about a biblical name. <laughs> of course, with the great last name of Weed. So. Um, <laughs> Kind of diffuses that a little bit, but anyway, <laughs> that's fine. So anyway, we have this parenthetical phrase. We're done with that. We're going to move on and then get back into the story, at least the way we would normally think of a story being told. Steve, before you move on, let me let me get this straight. There, there's two potential references here to Erastus that may or may not be. They may not be the same person. Okay. It may be that Erastus, obviously Erastus is a companion of Paul. He is in Corinth. We know there's an important person in Corinth. 
who was a part of the church when he wrote the letter to Rome. Is it the same person? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. But does it seem like that Second Timothy uh, reference is the more likely of the two? Uh, it, could be, it could be the same person. It could be different. In fact, New Testament scholars are split on the issue. Okay. We have some very conservative ones that says there's absolutely no chance in the world that they're the same person. Mm. And then you have a whole other group of going, oh, they're absolutely the same person. When he got there, he got involved with the community and became the city treasurer. Either or, it's just more kind of interesting. When you see names keep popping up, especially when Paul's you know, thanking people or sending greetings for people, you kind of realize there's a community here and he is introducing them or reminding them of connections. And that's just a really good way of knowing that Paul wasn't by himself. Mm-hmm. He, wouldn't, he wasn't just alone in his missionary work. Yeah. Verse 23 through 41. Now, we're going to go through this as rapidly as I can, because uh, it's a story that kind of tells itself. But I want you to keep in your head this question that I think would be a good, a good question to discuss as a group at the end question is, why is this story in the New Testament? And you'll see why, if you're not familiar with the story, why that's a fascinating question to discuss. Because it's not your typical story with a typical resolution that you would expect in a New Testament type story. So keep that in mind as we go through this. All right starts right off the phrase about that time is a favorite way of Luke to introduce a new section or a continued story. He uses this 69 times in Luke and 54 times in Acts. Now as someone who works in publishing and works with a lot of writers, a lot of writers have what I call ticks. They have certain phrases they like to use. That, and it, you'll find if somewhere were to transcribe every word you say, you might find there's certain favorite things you say over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And if you realize that you would, well, I need to take that out of my vocabulary or at least limit its use because it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, but this is one of the things that Luke uses frequently. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, isn't that a very gentle way to say that there was a kerfluffle? There was a mess, there was a noisy, you know, situation. There was no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, The way was, uh, we talked about this last time, is a terminology that had become the, the label for Christianity. It was just simply called the way. Basically a riot broke out. I decided to do a little research on modern day riots. Just 
kind of to put things in perspective for us. And of course, I use the most important and most accurate research tool in the world <laughs> called Wikipedia. <laughs> but at least you have a, it gives you a general gist of the facts. We can always verify them elsewhere. But in 2020, there were 33 riots in the United States that we can name. In 2021, there were 12 that we can name. And so far this year, there have been four that we can name. Hasn't it come to the point where we've stopped even noticing? Like another blow up in another city, or at least it's not here, and we just move on. It's becoming, unfortunately, like many things, we become numb to it. And of course, when the riots were breaking out in 2020 in particular, I, had, I remember talking with somebody, and they're saying, oh, it's never been like this before. You know, there's so much rancor. And I went, you weren't alive in 1968, were you? <laughs> you know, you had, what, 1965 was the Watts riot. Mm -hmm. And then there was the Detroit riots. And then you had the Democratic National Convention riots. You start fast forwarding and you think the Rodney King riots in LA. I mean, it's just, and that's just the United States. I imagine there were a few protests that got noisy in France. In Paris, yeah. In particular. I mean, it's just, it's a societal reaction to some sort of, something that, was, that they felt wronged and they want to make noise about it. It is also interesting that very few of them end up having any result. Things don't obviously change too much. Those that are involved feel better about it. This particular one is not as much a riot as it could have been. It's declared one in the header of your new, in your Bible. There's probably a little header at the top says riot in Ephesus. Well, remember that's not inspired. That's just to kind of help you find the verse reference when you're looking in your Bible. Um, this one was more a mob was upset and started getting very aggressive. So let's see what happened. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. We have to stop there and look at Demetrius. Who is this guy? We have no idea. So, parenthetical research pause for you, my little rabbit trails. Remember when we were talking about the possibility of the Apostle John being in Ephesus for some considerable time, in maybe in different times, because he was exiled to Patmos, which that island is right off the coast of Ephesus. It's right there. And if you think about the sermon series we're about to go through, in the, in, the, in the main service is to the seven churches of Revelation, which if you pull out your map, you can find them all. I mean, if you look at that map I handed you, you can find. You've got, well, not all of them here. It's not that, but a couple of them anyway. Thyatira, Perga, Lystra, others of that nature are all in this circle around Ephesus. 
And that letter is written by John. So, follow the rabbit trail. In 3 John, 3 John verse 12, it says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself we add our own testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So it's another case of, to bring back what Carl was asking about earlier, is that the same Demetrius in Ephesus that John is writing about in 3 John? Could he have later become a Christian? Mm. We don't know, but he pulls this guy's name out very specifically in 3 John. And yet the first time we come into this name is here in Acts 19. Anyway, just a question. I throw it out there just for tickles and grins and for you to uh, talk amongst yourselves. Um, or to win trivia questions in your next gathering. Uh, but he's a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis or Diana. Artemis is the Greek god name. Diana is the Roman god name. If you recall, there's a temple to Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So if you've ever seen a picture of that, or if you've ever been there, that thing is huge. And it's just astounding as you stand at its base and you look up at those tall pillars and you realize that the temple to Artemis was four times the size. That original temple <clears throat> was built in the 6th century BC, was burned to the ground in, th on, uh, in 356 BC, the, day, the night that uh, Alexander the Great was born. That's why they know the exact date for some reason. It was restored to its former glory and then expanded and became the great, one of the great wonders of the world in around 350 BC and lasted until 401 AD. It lasted 700 years. And I thought, well, is that a long time? Seems like a long time. What, what can I compare it to that we would comprehend to make a comparison? The US Capitol building is now around 200 years old. 200. This one lasted 700. Our Capitol building, I mean, it was burned to the ground. 1812. They rebuilt it and they keep, you know, keep adding to it and all that kind of stuff. And it's a baby by comparison to this thing. Inside that uh, temple, they had the Artemis god, which was the goddess of fertility. So it was a goddess with probably 20 breasts. It's one of these weird looking pieces. But they also had in there a meteorite, a black rock. Now, do you know of another place in the world that has a black rock that a temple's built around? 
Mecca. Not the same rock, just FYI. <laughs> Not even close. But it's that idea, because later on we'll see where they talk about this rock, this rock from the heavens was there. And they figured this has got to be special. It has to have some special power. And they worshiped this rock. So the silversmiths in the area, because there were so many tourists and so many people coming from all over the empire to visit this great tourist attraction, they made silver shrines, three to seven pounds. These little things that you could then put in your home to create a little home idol that you could have your votive candles on and burn images around or whatever, kind of like you've seen the Buddhas that people will put in their homes, little shrines. Now, it's fascinating. Archaeologists have yet to discover a single one of these silver shrines. They have found clay shrines, so they know their approximate size. But all that they can figure is that throughout history, whenever you know, marauders would come through, they'd find this little thing made out of silver. They go, well, heck, melt this down, and we'll turn it into something that we can actually use. And so they've been destroyed. Nobody preserved these, which is interesting. Obviously, when Paul and Christianity, or the way, begin making inroads into the city, um, people stopped buying the little shrines. And the silversmiths were not happy because it hit their pocketbook. They can't make any money. <clears throat> so he's upset. Um, there was another time we have in Acts chapter 16 where there was a man who had a young girl who could prophesy. And the demon was cast out and a upset group of you know people who were lo who lost their ability to make money off this little girl got upset so here we have again where christianity affected the economy the local economy I hate to ask it this way would when is the last time christianity affected the local economy kind of add to it. We have absorbed it. Rather than being a reaction, sure, there have been times where you know might have a particular group that says, we won't ever go to Disney World anymore. And Disney goes, so? They do whatever they want. There's a current you know, push right now because of Disney's late, late, latest antics. All that's happened is, is that their stock price has fallen, but the amount of people still going is as high as it ever was, and it's moving into the summer months, and people are still going, so it really doesn't change a whole lot in our current society. But back then, Christianity could actually affect the, uh, the commerce of the business, local businessmen. So. Yeah. Actually, if you think about it, 
God was pushed out of the public square, nothing was open on Sundays. That's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. But and a Good Friday and you know just uh, different things. Um, I mean, you nothing was open on Sundays. You're right. And mm -hmm. the holy days were were holy. Were holy. <laughs> um, and and that had a it, it was when that got swept away. Well, we can sell things here. We can you know we can leave our doors open after church hours. Mm -hmm. yep. And you know just in the afternoon. Then it got expanded and pretty soon. But most of, a lot of us in this room we are really really little. Um, even the thought of going to gas you didn't go on Sunday. The gas you. So oh, it's it, like it's, it's like Chick, Chick Fil A is so roundly criticized for not being open on Sunday. I think Sanderson Ford also is one of the top sellers in the nation of boards, and they're not open on Sunday. Remember when John Lennon made his famous quote about being more famous than Jesus Christ? Yeah. And those pastors would have the album burning. Oh. <laughs> Do you remember that? And it did have some effect on the sales. I think the sales went up. Yeah, that's also, <laughs> it's also 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you say modern days, but yeah, modern day, yeah. Mind, yeah. There's all sorts of interesting little elements where culture simply absorbed the world around it. But in this case, it created, it hurt the pocketbooks of the local um, uh, guild. I called it the Silversmith's Local 666. <laughs> Verse 25. He gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, which means guilds. They, they had them back then. In fact, I dug, it, dug into it, there are records of this era of guilds for bankers, doctors, architects, producers of wool and linen, makers of dye, metal workers, stone and clay masons, builders, carpenters, pastry chefs, barbers, embalmers, and transportation workers. There were all guilds in this era. It's how they gathered together. They could share ideas, you know, how do you do business? I do business this way. What are the new tricks in the way? How do we, you know, increase our sales? So he grabs all the silversmiths together and says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. <clears throat> a couple little things here. The phrase turned away, that you see right there, is a Greek word methislemi m-e-t-h-i-s-l-e-m-i -E -E that's the same word that's found in Colossians 1.13 that's translated as transferred when talking about people becoming Christians coming to Christ so you can go to First Corinthians uh, to Colossians 1.13 look at that same terminology and realize that's what this guy is saying. Paul isn't saying this. This is a secular silversmith is testifying to the power of Christ in the region. 
You don't have, this is not a sermon from Paul. This is not a sermon from one of the disciples. This is a secular person proclaiming that Christianity and the truth of Christ is having an impact. And it makes you wonder if Paul was preaching from Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 where it reads, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet they do not walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. What's that reference? Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Now, can you imagine if Paul is pulling from the Old Testament? That's a really powerful statement. And can you imagine him going to the, you know, the local 666 silversmith group and preaching that at them? And they're going, ah, well, that, that, that's them's fighting words. Well, verse 27, and there's a danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing and she may even be deposed or dethroned from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. They have found 33 different temples to Artemis throughout the Roman Empire. This was no light local you know, flower god. This was a major god in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, we're, we're in danger here. This, this, could all be, this could all go away. Well, as Demetrius intended, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. Jeremiah 50, verse 38. In his prophecy, he says, he wrote, it's a land of images and they are mad over idols. So here they are, the makers of these idols, and they are enraged. Literally, it means filled with rage in the Greek. The, um, the emotion behind the literal meaning is a panting rage. And you've probably run into people in your life at some point where they're so angry, they're out of control, and they can't even breathe. They are so angry. They have lost all physical control. That's what we have here. And they were crying out, crying out, one, two, three, four, Artemis and nothing more. <laughs> I thought a long time for that one. I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> you had to think of what were they chanting? They were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they have actually found archeological uh, papyri as well as um, uh, inscriptions that talk about the great God, Artemis. 
So for them to be saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, is no joke. In fact, it was interesting, I was reading a number of commentators who wrote their uh, commentary on Acts in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And these were all scholars who were alive during World War II. And they said this chant reminded them of Heil Hitler. Mm. Because they were trying to find what is a comparable large group that gets upset and is, or is just simply following something and chanting something. And they thought of that. Mm. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion. I found a, you know, an interesting comment that Ephesus was, um, it's, uh, what's my word here? It's population density, it was actually a small area, it wasn't spread out like Phoenix. So it was a small area that probably had close to 200 people per acre, like a slum. So they're all packed densely, probably around the harbor where all the commerce was coming through. So they didn't, you know, have a safe way, you know, 22 miles away that you would go to. I mean, it was all right there, probably the marketplace is down there. The temple is right in the center of it all. This city is now filled with confusion. You have a rage, then you have confusion, and then you have a mob. And the next phrase, and they rushed together into the theater. And the word rushed is the same one used in Acts chapter 7 when the Pharisees rushed to stone Stephen. It's that same idea there. And this time they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus who are Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Like, what did they do? They happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they were grabbed and taken to the theater. I've mentioned this theater. It's actually a mile and a half from the city center. That's not just down the street. So there's intentionality here. They're taking them to the largest public square that they can find that can house the most people. We've discussed this theater before. I'll just reiterate some of the, the facts about it. It is still there. It's been uncovered. You can go visit it if you want. And it will seat close to 25,000 people in a half bowl. And there's three steps, I guess you'd call sections, going down to the main theater. This is where they had their plays, where they would, you know, do the famous plays, the Greek tragedies that we all had to read in school and we don't remember any of them. But that's where they were performed, was in this theater. It's also where they had all of their public events, because it was the one place that could gather the most together. The fact that you could fit that many people in it, suggests that it was designed to fill it. 
This is a large city with a large theater. Mile and a half northeast, and I immediately thought, about a mile and a half or so from the city center is the Madhouse on McDowell. <laughs> Veterans Memorial Coliseum. If you think about it, you could go down near the Capitol, you know, kind of in that area, and go up about a mile and a half, maybe two or three, I mean, I don't know exactly, to find a large place where 20,000 people could show up. Now people turn the other direction and they go to the ballpark, either to the uh, basketball arena or to the baseball park. But before those were built, that was where people went. So you see, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they grab these two guys in the middle of the city and drag them for a mile and a half, which is going to take a half hour. They are intent on doing something, let's just say not very nice to these two guys. We see Gaius and Aristarchus in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Uh, they're traveling with Paul. We also see Aristarchus is from Thessalonica and Gaius is from Derby. You find Aristarchus later on the ship with Paul on the way to Rome in, Ro in Acts chapter 27. He was also in prison with Paul. He mentions him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. So, you have some of Paul's fellow companions are getting drugged into the theater with a mad group. Now, I was trying to think, how many, it doesn't say how many people were in the mob. Uh, this isn't like, you know, a... A, uh, a protest where there's one person and of course if it's a let's just say a non-conservative protester showing up on a street corner every TV camera in the local area will film that person and then put it on the news that there was a big protest and you have this one person going I don't like what I'm seeing <laughs> this wasn't that I doubt if 25,000 people showed up. But like any mob, you pick up people as you go. They're curious. They want to know what all the hubbub is. And so it could grow to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people, enough to make a lot of noise and get the local establishment concerned. So. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. I mean, Paul was simply not afraid. He says, hey, I got stoned in Lystra. I mean, they left me for dead and here I am. You know, have at it. I, they're making a big mess. I want to be there and talk to these guys. Well, his disciples are pulling him back, saying, no, 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 no. This is, this is worse than anything we've seen here in the last two or three years. Because remember, he's, a, he's been in Ephesus for almost three years now. 
And he hasn't, he's been making a lot of noise the whole time. Verse 31. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. What in the world is an Asiarch? It's an Asian oligarch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you probably have a study Bible that has the answer in the bottom. But this is with always one of those things that whenever a pastor would preach before study Bibles came around, they were like, ah, I got something that nobody knows in the congregation and I can go off on tangents. Asiarchs were, literally the phrase means chief of Asia. Every Roman province had an ark, a chief. This person was picked each year in an, in a, to, uh, to uh, represent the province at the local games that were held in Ephesus. It was a very uh, honorific. This wasn't a government position per se, but it was a big honor for someone to be named a Ark or a chief. Syria had Syriarchs, Galatia had Galatiarchs, Macedonia had Macedoniarchs. Okay, so there were multiple arcs from the different provinces. This one happened to be Asiarchs, and you notice it's plural. And I, well, I thought there was only one at a time. That's true, but if you were named it, you could keep the title for the rest of your life. It, was, it meant that much. So there's very likely a, a few of them, but Paul had become friends with them. That's interesting. It doesn't say they were believers. It just says they were friends. Philios. And they were repeatedly, in the Greek, repeatedly urging him not to venture into the theater. They were pulling him back saying, don't, don't go. This is not going to have a good outcome. We need to protect you right now. Now, in the theater, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. <laughs> now, it was interesting, one guy brought out, he says, the Greek comedies which are performed in the theater often parodied the, they called it the stupidity of people, but they would dramatize folks that would say one thing, others would say others, and others are going, why are we here? I mean, there's their donuts, you know, and they're kind of going, what's going on? And it actually says, the Greek readers of Acts would laugh at this sentence because it would sound just like the Greek tragedies they were familiar with. It's like a punchline. The sheeple. The sheeple, <laughs> there you go. There's some that are just going, they're, they're there for the donuts. Or, I mean, if you've ever seen or talked to people who've been part of these something, various things, there are those who are the, um, the instigators. There are those within their immediate crowd that are whipping everyone into, into a frenzy. But then there's those in the periphery just kind of going, what's happening? 
It's different than my normal day-to-day, so let's go find out. And they became part of the mob. Some of them find out and they get angry, and then they become part of the mob, but then they're not all on the same page, and they're arguing about different things. 30, verse 33. Some of the crowd, sorry, who is in the crowd that did this, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew. And for two hours, they cried out with one voice, one, two, three, four, Artemis, and nothing more. For two straight hours, they're shouting him down, and anybody, no one could talk. And you're going, okay, Alexander, who is Alexander? Why did they put him in place? Well, here comes another fun part about names in the Bible. Alexander is a fairly common name. Just agree to that. Because you have Alexander the Great and families would name their children after that. But, 2 Timothy 4.14 Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul is writing to Timothy, who at the time was the pastor in Ephesus, and mentions Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander was thrown into this mix with Demetrius the silversmith. Could it be that it was a similar guild? A precious metal guild worker, but he was Jewish. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to help him learn not to blaspheme. So is it the same guy? We don't know. But you have Paul writing to Timothy twice about someone named Alexander in Ephesus as a problem. What's yeah. the second reference? First Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Isn't that interesting? Mm. But the people there, the non-Jews, didn't want to listen to a Jew. It could be that what Alexander was trying to, you know, raise his hand and get him to stop is to say, it's not the Jews that are making the mess. It's the people of the way. But they didn't want to listen to that. And so for two hours, they shouted and screamed. Verse 35, and the town clerk, what in the world is a town clerk? The town clerk comes in. All we know is that it's a a civic official, a top civic official, not a mayor, and maybe it could be something like that. Um, They were the person who announced the rulings of the assembly. They represented the city to Roman provincial officials and was in charge of the city's money. And often the town clerk, we see the word clerk, we think of a nobody, 
But in this case, it was a somebody. But the name of that clerk, whenever they would issue a coin, that person's name was actually embedded on it. There was probably an image of the Caesar, but somewhere on that coin, the town clerk, if it was issued by that city, was placed there. We don't know this guy's name, but somehow he got the crowd to quiet down. It took him two hours to wear out. But he quieted them and he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Remember the meteor I was talking about. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, Gaius and Aristarchus, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. They've done nothing criminal. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, we have a court system, guys. We've got someone who works in the court system. We have a court system. I remind people this all the time. Yeah, there, there, is a, there is a method to this. There is reason. There is order. If you have a complaint, you can work it out in the court system. If you have a complaint, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Now, the proconsul, each province had one. They're not a governor, because there were governors under them, but the proconsul was the person appointed by Rome. It's interesting, it says that there's proconsuls. And the theory is, we know, according to the records, is that the proconsul of Ephesus had died that year. Approximately when this is happening, we know that that particular proconsul had passed away and it was possible that they had to put together a small committee to replace him. So that would be shared people, which is why the plural is here. Maybe, maybe not. But it is an interesting trivia thing. Why did he make it plural? So let them bring the charges against one another. One another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. The regular assembly happened three times a month, and it was a legal group meeting. What's happening right now is illegal. It was not called by the city fathers. It was not on the schedule. And it was turning ugly. And those shouts from the madhouse at McDowell could be heard by the entire community and possibly the Roman centurion who's in charge of security for the town is starting to hear that there's trouble up at the theater. Verse 40, for we are in danger. We are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. That's why I said at the beginning, this isn't a riot. It didn't happen. A riot never actually occurred in their definition. It was close to it. They drugged two guys a mile and a half to the theater, started shouting for two and a half hours. But we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Rome did not like riots. 
they would crack down on the people in a city so fast and so aggressively. There's even a, an indication of one city that had a riot and the Romans, and it was a free city like Ephesus is. It was one of the few free cities, had its own senate, had its own governing body. It happened in another place and they dissolved the senate and remove free speech from the entire city for a period of time. No one could speak in public on any topic because the last time it happened, people started fighting in the streets and Rome came down and bam, stopped it in its tracks. They're not kidding when this happens. You kind of wish it had happened a few times here in the United States, but anyway, that's another story. Donna said that it sounded like Canada. Oh, Canada? Yeah, it sounded like Portland. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, the, the difference between what is happening in a riot is once the cars start being turned over, once the buildings right. start being torched, and that you can think, well, the Romans don't want Right, to get they don't want blood. that. Yeah. Right. In fact, one, one uh, teacher in writing about this, he said, there weren't any cars to turn over. There wasn't any gas for Molotov cocktails. Um, they didn't even have matches. <laughs> it wouldn't stop them from making a mess, no. So, there's nothing we could justify it. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So, everybody go home. And from what we can tell, they did. <laughs> so, G. Campbell Morgan said something very interesting about the, how this ended. He said, let us be very careful that we do not waste our energy and miss the meaning of our high calling by any rejoicing in the patronage of the world. When the town clerk starts to take care of the church, please God, deliver us from the peril. It's the town clerk, not a Christian, not from anything we know. He made a secular argument and ended the riot. And it makes you know, it's like, okay. But notice the story ends. So remember my question at the beginning, verse 18? Why is this story here? What lesson is being told to us in 2022 about a situation like this that seems very detailed? I mean, this is really a lot of detail. So we have almost 20 verses in the, in the New Testament in Luke's story of Paul's journeys. Paul is a bit player in this. He's not even allowed to show up. What? Why is this here? Any thoughts? Don't look at me. I don't have the answer. Someone is <laughs> against the, the hmm? bureaucracy. My wife might say that. Okay, maybe. Okay. Oh, he was making a joke about being aware of those in the power of the bureaucracy. The power of the, the bureaucracy. The person who uh, has all this authority and control. Yeah. not even elected official has no accountability. So. Yeah. There's that. I work in government. I just think of that. Yeah, he works in government, so he thinks of having over too much power in the government. Overarching. Overarching. Yes. Yeah, didn't we call them 
Arch. AG Arch. AZ Arch. Yeah. Good thought. Go ahead. Um, so God, government is from God. Right. And to give us peace and law and order. And so it's a good thing. And this, this way, it was just exposing how that the Gentile held. You know, he was a was he, town clerk. Was, he, was a, he wasn't a Jew. It was the, the town clerk. So a, a Probably was a Roman. Was yeah. able to, with the threat of knowing that the Romans could come down hard on them. It does show that government has a place of sorts. Yes? My strongest impression was of uh, the demonic power that was in this place. Because we have things like enragement to the point where they couldn't even breathe right. We have rage, confusion, who's the author of confusion. I think this is an insight into what happens to any kind of a human society that gets imbued with a demonic possession. And this is an outworking of when you see this kind of behavior, there, it's more than just people acting out. There's demonic pressure behind this that is coming out. Like it's very good, game. Carl, because you have the previous inciting incident in the early part of chapter 19, which was the, um, the magicians, the, those that are trying to use the name of Jesus as a power source, a demonic thing. Here, that idol worship meant commerce. And you have to say, when you start messing with people's idols, they get angry. You think of our media. You think of what we in our world consider and hold precious. You attack Hollywood, you're obviously an idiot. Really? I mean, come on. I mean, but they hold all the keys and all the power. But what kind of message are they portraying? If you stand up as as Christian and you say, This is what the Bible says, you will be shouted at for two hours. One, two, three, four, Hollywood, and nothing more. Well, I, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Don. Steve, I was curious at the, interf the interface between verse 37. You have brought these materials sacrilegious or blasphemers or godless. Move back in uh, verse 26. Because they, uh, they were aware that Paul and the others were saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So they were, Paul seems to have just been presenting what? Simple truth, but not consciously tearing down their religious structure and just letting the truth do its work. I mean, what do you think about it? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. <laughs> I didn't want to bring it out because it's... Uh, this is from John MacArthur's sermon on this passage. John MacArthur wrote, people who have become temples of the Holy Spirit don't need temples of Artemis. There was no demonstration against idolatry. There was just salvation and the force forcing out of the old. 
So just to your point, Paul just simply presented the truth as truth and then lived and presented a holy life as a contrast to their life. He didn't go out and say, one, two, three, four, Jesus Christ and nothing more. He didn't protest against them. He simply said, this is the truth. MacArthur went on, says, I was reading about the scrub oak tree. And you know, it's w during wintertime, all the trees lose their leaves except the scrub oak. It has these crummy little leaves and the wind blows like mad, but they hold on throughout all of autumn and blow through all of winter and the scrub oak still has its leaves. The scrub oak le loses its leaves in springtime when the new leaves push off the old. When there's new growth, the old dies finally and is pushed out. I think it's an apt illustration of what happened in Ephesus. There wasn't some big tempest that blew off the worship of Artemis. It wasn't an attack. It was the growth of new life in the church that just pushed out the old. The issue technically took care of itself through holy living and through an example. Isn't that fascinating? To what you were bringing out is that, yeah, there's this idea Paul wasn't he was presenting an alternative constantly consistently without compromise he didn't add a new trick or a new carnival or something to make his point he just kept saying it over and over and over again and finally this group reacted now boy have I really gone over time sorry guys if you need to jump out and get kiddos, I don't know. Okay. Um, here's another little interesting thing. So remember, we're in Ephesus. Right after this is chapter 20 of Acts, where it reads, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples and after encouraged them, said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And we had gone through the regions, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. He went to Corinth and spent the winter in Corinth and wrote the Book of Romans, which is what we're going to start studying next week. So that's why we come to this point. But he was in Ephesus. All of this thing has happened. He gets ready to leave. His time there is done. He has set things in place, set things in motion. 30 years later, John, writing in the book of Revelation, I actually, I actually was thinking that this was going to be this week's sermon, but it's not, it's next week's. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. He's writing to the Ephesian church. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my own sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Even this Ephesian church that had Paul right there, that had Timothy as their pastor, that had John as a counselor in the area, had their troubles. They had abandoned their first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand unless you repent. We cannot take our foot or our eye off for a moment because that's what the enemy's waiting for. For that one moment, ah, oh, good. Bam, got him. Bring him down. Turn him into a bad testimony. Turn him into a hypocrite. And then I've got 10 more people around him who will then say, see, I knew Christianity was a bunch of hypocrites because of him. I was just waiting for that moment. And you think of these names that we've explored, the Demetriuses and the, um, oh, what was his name? Alexanders, the, the coppersmiths, and these others that were around the situation. But there were some that stayed firm. Erastus, Timothy, who stayed the course and stayed with Paul and with the message of, of, of the gospel. We are in a constant battle, and it is a spiritual war. And I do think that's why this, was, this is here, to illustrate this idea that the spiritual battle that we struggle with, it's in the marketplace, and it's in front of us at every moment. And it can turn ugly really fast if we're not careful. And as G. Campbell Morgan says, but if the town clerk saves us, we're in peril if we think that human government will solve the problems of the church or of the world. It will not. It's a band-aid. You know, it's like, oh, well, we dodged that one. But it's not. And we just see it over and over again. So, thanks for listening to all this. I probably better... Go ahead. No, I, should, I mean, you said, what, what's this here for? I mean, one of the things that I thought of is that... <clears throat> Too often we become too attached to our wealth. And anything that threatens our wealth is a cause to get really excited. And I think maybe warning to Christians, like um, I know a lot of people that are really involved in politics, but for them it's about protecting my wealth, not about, about um, a world where the gospel can spread. You know? And so I think sometimes we get too fixated and we look to government. You know, we're gonna give the right causes, the right politicians, and they're gonna protect our wealth. Um, Somebody used to work with said, whatever happened to my Republican Party, which was the party that was all about protecting wealth, they did not so much about um, the issues like abortion and other, I'll call it, uh, the intersections between religion and politics and so much. But anyway, so he, that he progressed that, that, you know, that's where the party's kind of gone. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, there's, there's good and bad. But I think often it is kind of mixed because a lot of people look at it as we are here to protect our wealth position. Yeah. And I don't know if that's necessary. When you touch someone's pocketbook, they lose their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Case that, in point. 
Well, I was thinking of the writing in Paris. It's when they, uh, only time I've heard about the writing is when they changed the social security age, you know, and increased it, and people got really mad and rioted. That's what I remember, so. I mean, it's like we're all just waiting for an excuse. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. A seemingly innocuous passage in the text that you give us. It just tells a story of a lot of mad people, some obscure ancient city that doesn't even exist anymore. And yet, you put it here for us in April 2022 to explore and to discuss and to look at how you have worked in people's lives and in our lives every day and in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.